Uh, thanks, James. What a great reading. Uh, my name's Dave Myers. Uh, it's good to be with you again for the third week in a row. Uh, I'm a youth pastor from Sydney's northern beaches, if you haven't been here over the previous weeks. Uh, and it's good as we get closer to Easter uh, to reflect upon Jesus again, uh, to reflect upon who he is, what he did, what he came to do, what he taught, all those things. And so I guess the thing about Jesus, uh, and I guess... At this time of the year, even if you don't know heaps about Christianity, even if you don't know heaps about religion, uh, there's kind of opportunities to hear about religion. There's opportunities to hear about Christianity. There's opportunities to hear about Jesus. There are people who go to church this weekend who don't normally go to church, but once or maybe twice a year, they rock up to church and, I guess, do the religious duty and do that thing and um, maybe take some type of meal or, or whatever it might be that they do at this time of the year. You know, Jesus is, he really is one of the, the most extraordinary figures in all of history. And I guess the, the thing about Jesus, you know, there's, there's so many ways in which we have seen just how extraordinary Jesus is reflected throughout history. You know, books, music, uh, not Rebecca Black style music, uh, a little bit more creative music than that perhaps. Uh, you know, literature, art, and all of these different places throughout the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been depicted in various ways. And here's the thing that the EU, the group that's running today's event, and the Bible, and indeed Christians believe, is that Jesus matters. And how you respond to Jesus matters. And so you might be here this afternoon and you've been hearing about Jesus for your whole life, but you've never actually responded appropriately to Jesus. Or maybe you're here this afternoon and you consider yourself a very religious person and you think that you have responded appropriately to Jesus. You think that you and Jesus are okay. You think that everything is fine with you and him. Or it might well be that you're here this afternoon uh, and you stumbled into this lecture theatre. Or it might well be that you got dragged along from your last lecture with your friend and they said, come along, it's going to be amazing. It's going to, we're going to watch Rebecca Black on the big screen. It's, it's Tuesday, but hey, Friday's coming and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> but the thing that Christians believe, the things we claim about Jesus is that he matters more than anything else. And so here's my question for you. My question for you is how are you going to respond to Jesus? What difference is he going to make in life? You know, at this Easter, as, as you have opportunities to hear about Jesus, maybe rocking up to church for the first time since this time last year, uh, how are you going to respond to Jesus differently this year? And I guess to answer that question, we're going to look at, I think, one of the most famous stories that have ever been told from the Bible. Uh, if you've got a Bible in front of you, keep it open. Uh, Luke chapter 10. Uh, and in this particular story, we hear it's a parable, it's a story that Jesus told. So it didn't, nece- it didn't necessarily happen, but it's a story he's told to make a point. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. My guess is you've heard of the Good Samaritan, even if you haven't opened this part of the Bible before. My guess is you've heard of this, this guy, and, and maybe you've even been referred to, oh, you're such a Good Samaritan. Oh, wasn't he a Good Samaritan? And so we may be familiar with the term, but I think as we dig into this part of the Bible, we'll actually see that it might say something a little bit different to maybe how it's popularly uh, understood. And so in this scene... If you were here last week, we had, a, we had a religious type of person, a rich ruler. He came and approached Jesus and asked a very similar question to what the question that this lawyer, this expert in the law asks in sentence 25. Teacher, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? 
So similar question that we looked at last week and similar question we see again today. And so we've got this expert in the law and Jesus responds to him and says, what is written in the law? He said, how do you read it? And he was an expert in the law. That means he knew the Old Testament law. He knew what had been written in the first few books of the Bible and he knew it well. And so he quotes from the book Deuteronomy. Have a look what he says. He answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty sweet and kind of a pretty good summary of what the law required of people to love God and to love others. To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbour as yourself. That was kind of the summary. The summary of everything that went on in the law. And so there's a sense in which this expert in the law, he's kind of got it right. Yet he pushes it further. Look what Jesus says. You've answered correctly. Uh, Do this and you'll live. But, sentence 29, uh, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Now, here is this religious fellow, this expert in the law, who asks that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, and he's, he's trying to test Jesus. I don't know if you noticed it there. He's actually trying to test Jesus by what he's saying. And then in that last sentence, he's trying to justify himself. You know, here is this person that knows the law, and here is this person that believes he is keeping the law. Here is this person that believes he is okay with God. Here is this religious person who believes that God will accept him based on his performance, based on the way that he has lived. And so Jesus tells a story. And this is the, this is the famous part of the story, and this is the part that you may have heard before. And here's what he says in the story. He says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. All you need to understand about that route from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was kind of a notorious stretch of road. It was a pretty tough area to travel and bandits and robbers would regularly roll people. It's kind of a little bit like, uh, you know, walking down that CBD street late at night, the one that's got the bad reputation. It's kind of a little bit like that. And this guy's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, walks down that road and he gets rolled by some gangsters. You know, they strip him of his gear, they take all of his stuff, they beat him up, you know, they film it, put it on YouTube, they, they want to let everyone know about how tough they are, and, uh, and then they leave him almost dead on the side of the road. And so here is this man who's, who's barely breathing, who's barely alive, who is naked and probably cold and uh, in a great amount of pain and hoping that someone would just walk past that someone would come to help him in his time of need, that someone would come to show some mercy to him. And then we find out in the next sentence that a priest just happens to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he stopped and helped him. Now, it doesn't say that he stopped and helped him. He actually passes by on the other side of the road. Here is this very religious figure. Here is this priest This important person in the history of Israel, this important person in the community of Israel in the first century, but he physically distances himself from helping someone who is clearly in need, who is clearly desperate, who clearly needs to be helped. Perhaps perhaps the priest was on his way to a meeting. 
Perhaps the priest was on his way to some lunch appointment. Maybe the priest was on his way to do some important religious things in the temple. You know, maybe for him it was just a little bit too costly on his time. Maybe it was just a little bit too inconvenient to stop and help this dude who'd been rolled. And so he walks on. And then another fellow, the next sentence, 32, so to a Levite. What's a Levite? Levites were basically temple assistants. You know, they kind of helped out. They helped the priest. They were very religious. They helped to do important things in the religious temple. But the Levite, he too, when he came to the place, he sees him and he likewise passes along on the other side of the road. You know, surely he would help. Surely he would stop and help out this guy who's lying in the gutter, half dead, naked, in great need. But no, he doesn't. Maybe it was too costly the time to stop and do that. Maybe it was just too inconvenient. Maybe it would just be a little bit messy. He's not into blood, which is a bit bizarre because he works in a temple, which is kind of part of their job was blood. And so it can't have been that it was too messy, but this guy doesn't stop. He doesn't help. He doesn't love this guy who's lying in the street. And then enters in our character, the, the, I guess the hero of the story. This guy that we, we, we now know as the good Samaritan. Check out what happens in sentence 33. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. You know, when the other guys saw him, they turned their heads and walked on the other side of the street. They didn't show any pity. They didn't even think to stop and help this man in his time of need. But check out what the Samaritan does. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. You know, what did he bandage the wounds with? Is he carrying around a first aid kit? Is that what Samaritans did in the first century? Does he go to the boot of his car and pull out the first aid kit? No, he doesn't have a first aid kit. He probably even took um, clothing off himself to create a bandage. Now, this dude literally strips himself down and literally takes his own clothes off to help the naked one, to help one with wounds, to bind him up. And it goes on, he pours, he, he pours on oil and wine, not cheap things in his time. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. And here is this guy, the Samaritan, who no matter the cost... No matter the inconvenience, no matter how messy, he goes above and beyond. He does more than he necessarily had to do. You know, the next day, sentence 35, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You know, two silver coins was basically two denarii. Uh, which was basically two days' worth of work, two days' worth of wages, you know, and basically paid for three and a half weeks' worth of rent at this inn, of accommodation at this place. And so he's, he's going over and above in showing mercy. He's going over and above in helping this guy out who is lying in the street. You know, this guy really is. He's a hero. He really is a hero. He's a legend. He does an incredible act of love, an incredible act of kindness. As he sees that man lying in the street, he stops and goes over and above to help him in his time of need. Now, this is a famous story. 
you know, the Good Samaritan. I, I feel if you watch the news enough, you know, it's particularly at the end of the news when they have those feel-good type of stories. They'll often have those Good Samaritan stories. It normally involves stopping to help a, a, a kangaroo that's been hit by a car on the side of the road and, you know, the Good Samaritan pulled over and, and took the kangaroo in and took him to the appropriate people to look after. And, you know, you kind of hear Good Samaritan stories of heroes who stop and help out the needy. And it's not just helping a little jelly on the side of the street. It might also just be helping someone that's been beaten up. And so we hear that term, the Good Samaritan. You know, this story has become so famous that most people have no idea about the story of the Good Samaritan. Most people have no idea about the context of the Good Samaritan. But the term has kind of become synonymous. We're just talking about a hero who stops to help someone. And as we read this story, he is a hero who stops to help someone. Do you know what the shocking thing is as we read this story? And the shocking thing would have been for the first century Jewish listeners to this story, they would have been shocked at the suggestion of putting the word good in front of the name Samaritan. Now, what you need to understand about Samaritans is that they were not considered good by the Jewish people, by the nation of Israel. In Jewish eyes, the Samaritans, as they saw it, were half-breeds. They were ethnic traitors. They were bad guys. To say that there was great hostility between Jewish people and Samaritans would be an understatement. Now, these guys were enemies. These guys hated each other. In all likelihood, the guy on the ground was probably a Jewish fella. I'm pretty confident that the guy on the ground was a Jewish fella. In all likelihood, he actually already hated the guy that came to rescue him. He already hated this good Samaritan hero who came to bandage his wounds. And so here we have this Jewish guy on the ground. And the Jewish religious figure, the, 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 the priest, the Jewish religious figure, the Levite, they both walk by on the other side of the road, not stopping to help their own countrymen. But the enemy comes and walks and doesn't cross to the other side of the road, but gets closer to the action, gets his hands dirty, shows mercy in an incredible way. You see, between Jews and Samaritans, there was a lot of hatred. There was a lot of hostility. You know, I think we, in rich, um, middle-class Sydney, we, we might struggle sometimes in a fairly safe place to understand real hostility. Sometimes for us, hostility is, you know, I like Mac better. No, I like PC better. You know, like that, that almost becomes the, the height of hostility is over which flipping computer you're going to use. Or maybe, maybe for the rev heads, if there's any amongst us, it might be, I like Ford better. I like Holden. I don't think they ever have voices like that. I like Holden better. You know, it's kind of, Hostility between those types of things, maybe hostility between different sporting codes, uh, hostility between, um, you know, different subcultural groupings, perhaps, uh, hostility between different musical tastes, and it's all kind of pretty lame, and it's all kind of pretty unhostile. Or, or it might well be that uh, you might think of the University of Sydney versus... I don't know, New South or anyone? Is it pretty much you guys against everyone? Is that? That's how it rolls. You guys are the ones that everyone hates or you hate everyone. I don't know which way it works. But, 
you know, you actually don't have to look too far to see that there's far more significant examples of hostility in our world today. There really are significant examples of hostility between tribal groups, between ethnic groups, long history of violence, long history of hatred, long history of, hey, we don't even know why we hate each other, but I hate you. You know, I grew up in the, um, <laughs> I grew up in Australia. I grew up on the Central Coast, which is a very Anglo place. Uh, it really is. It's very monocultural. Um, uh, I went to, <laughs> this is not to be, uh, uh, not to be offensive any, any way whatsoever, but I went to a selective high school. And my year, we had three Asians in our year. And that's what I'm saying about our year, our school is, and the, sorry, the Central Coast, is there's very monocultural, very English, very, uh, very much like that. And so growing up in the 1990s, I, I played a lot of soccer and I played a lot of soccer in Sydney. And I got some little glimpses into some racial and ethnic type of hostility in, uh, in the 1990s. I don't know if you know much about the Balkans. I don't know if you know much about the former Yugoslavia. I don't know if you know much about lots of the stuff that went on during the 1990s over there. But it was actually reflected in little ways and quite significant ways in Sydney. And so two of the soccer teams, uh, I think they still have some problems with one another. Sydney United soccer team, uh, based out in Adenza Park, uh, and Bonnie Rigg White Eagles soccer team, based in Bonnie Rigg. Uh, the Sydney United team have a uh, Croatian heritage. The uh, Bonnie Rigg team have a Serbian heritage. And I remember when we used to go and play against these teams and you used to get little glimpses of some of the issues that were going on in their homeland and some of the historical issues that were going on in their country and there'd be mornings we'd be going to soccer and the Croatian cafe had been bombed by the Bonnie Rig, by the, not the Bonnie Rig, by the, by their Serbian cousins. And then the next week something else would happen and I remember this one particular occasion. We were going to play against the Croatian team, Sydney United, uh, and our uniform looked a lot like the uniform of the Bonnie Rig team. We were warming up before the game and I'm glad to say there was a barbed wire fence between us and the outside of the stadium. And we were warming up and these local fellas came over to us and said, hey, are you guys Bonnyrig? Are you guys Serbia? And they were ready to jump the fence and roll us. They were ready to jump the fence and take us down for being on their property, for being on their turf. And we're like, oh, no, 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 we're skippies, man. We're, we're, like, we're, we're from the central coast, the beach. You know, we're, we're not here to hurt you or anything like that. You've got the wrong team. Look, look, look what it says on our shirt. And anyway, it just gave a glimpse of this hostility between the Croatian and the Serbian community. And you, I don't know, you might be here this, morning, this afternoon from one of those communities or related to people. And, you know, I think people start to forget even why they're fighting. People start to forget why they have an issue with one another. You don't have to scratch too far in our world. There's just one tiny example that is significant of the hostility between two different people groups and hostility between two different people groups where you will kill just because the other person is of the other people group, regardless of whether you know the history of why you hate each other, whether you know the history of who did what wrong first or how it worked. That is kind of a common thing in our world. And in first century Palestine, in first century Israel, the hostility between the Jewish people and the hostility between the Samaritans was intense was intense. The hostility was so great that there was no way you would be friends with a Samaritan if you were a Jew. 
You know, Jesus talks to Samaritans a whole bunch of times throughout the Bible. And people get offended. They're like, how can he talk to Samaritans? They are the enemy. How can he talk to them? We have hostility towards them. We hate them. They hate us. We're on opposing teams. Yet who's the true neighbour in this story? It's actually the Samaritan fella. He is the true neighbour in this story. He is the one who loves. He is the one who shows mercy. Not to his countryman on the ground. Not to his friend lying on the ground. But he shows mercy and grace to the one who's lying on the ground, probably hating him. As he strips that shirt from off his back and bandages the wound. As he puts him on the donkey. Maybe the guy the whole time actually hated him in that process. Maybe he didn't want help from this guy. He wanted it from the priest, perhaps. He wanted it from the Levite. But no way does he want this Samaritan to stop and help him. And so in response to the question that the the man originally asks, and uh, he he asks the question of, who is my neighbour? You know, Jesus is kind of showing who our neighbour is, who his neighbour is. Look at sentence 36. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? But in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus actually calls people to love their neighbour like the Samaritan has loved this Jewish person. Jesus actually calls people not just to love their friend as if neighbours are those that are our friends, but neighbours are those who are hard to love. Neighbours are those who actually may even hate us. Neighbours are our enemies as well. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. You know, this series is called Jesus Hates Religion. There's a sense in which Jesus doesn't hate religion when it leads to genuine love of God and a genuine love of your neighbour. Jesus doesn't hate religion that leads to a genuine love of God and a genuine love of neighbour. But Jesus hates the religion of many in the first century here. Jesus hates the religion when it claims to love God, when it claims to know God, when it claims to worship God, yet fails to love other people. Fails to love the neighbour. Not just the one that's easy to love, not just the popular crowd, but the, the one that's hard to love, the one that's an enemy, the one that hates you. Now, that's actually the call of Jesus here. And so in the series, over the last few Tuesdays, here's kind of where we've been. You know, week one, we looked at Jesus hates religion, ultimately because it leads to self-righteousness, trust in self rather than trust in God. Last week, we looked at Jesus hates religion because it leads to a failure to ultimately love God, a failure to ultimately love God. And so this week, as we finish at least the Tuesday series, Jesus hates religion when it leads to a failure to love others in a real way, in a costly way, in a messy way, in an inconvenient way. You see, we find it, we find it fairly easy to love our friends, but to love our enemies, man, that is a big call. You know, my guess is most people here are part of the generation they're calling Generation Y. Put your hand up if you kind of think you're a Generation Y type of person. Lots of hands going up. The others are asleep. If the person beside you is asleep, just give them a bit of a whack in the head. Generation Y. Here's what it says about Generation Y. 
uh, Generation Y is said to kind of be the next great generation. I think that's what you guys claim about yourselves. I'm kind of on the borderline. You know, Generation Y love to be on about causes. I reckon it's really encouraging seeing the way that lots of young 20-somethings are kind of getting behind causes. But here's also my observation. My observation is that as young 20-somethings, as Gen Y people get behind causes, I think causes, I think there's more talk than action. You know, it's kind of easy to click a like button on Facebook or click join this cause on Facebook. You know, I've gone to some of those causes on Facebook pages where a million people have clicked like or join and then like $1,000 has been raised from a million people to go towards that cause. You know, we're happy to click a button or we're happy to wear the, the Make Poverty History bracelet, but are we actually willing to make poverty history? Are we actually willing to love and get messy with the way that we love and be inconvenienced and, and, and costly? You know, we, we're univers- you're university students and you, you say you don't have much money, but you spend $3.50 a day on a coffee when 2.8 billion people in the world live on less than $2 a day and you can't be generous because you need your uh, soy skinny cap mocha latte chai? <laughs> if you drink one of those, let me know how it goes because you might be dead. You know, here's, I guess here's the encouragement from Jesus to Generation Y is... Hey, cool, you're on about causes, you're on about loving the marginalised, you're on about helping the needy, you talk about it, well then do it. Put it into practice, not just to your friends, not just so it's convenient, but to those that it's hard to love, those that are even our enemies. Do you know what the problem is though as I read this story and as we reflect upon it together? The problem is we are more often like not the good Samaritan who goes out of their way to love our enemies, uh, This is me, and I'm guessing it's you. We're more often like the priest. We're more often like the Levite, who will rather actually cross to the other side of the road and get out of the way of something that's going to take up our time, of something that's going to be very costly, of something that's going to just be a bit too messy in the way that we are to love. You see, the question that the the lawyer starts with He starts with the question there in sentence 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the problem with the question? He's already failed to do what he has to do to inherit eternal life. God says, love me. God says, love your neighbour as yourself. The reality is each of us have failed to love God. The reality is each of us have failed to love our neighbour as ourself. You know, I'm not saying that we're always as bad as we possibly can be, but the reality is that the Bible speaks about a condition that each and every single one of us have. The condition that each and every single one of us have is the condition that the Bible calls sin. What is sin? Sin is when we fail to actually love God as we should love him. Sin is when we fail to love others as we should love others. And so the Bible actually says that all are guilty of sin. We're guilty of sin by the things that we do that we shouldn't do. And we're guilty of sin by the things that we don't do that we should have done. You know, we fail to do the things we're supposed to and we do the things we're not supposed to do. You see, religion. Religion, here's the problem with religion. I've been saying it the last couple of weeks. I don't know if you've been coming to Wednesdays and Thursdays as well. But the problem with religion, religion is all about depending on what I do and my performance. 
Religion is all about depending on what I can do to, to, to please God, what I can do to keep a list of rules. Yet the reality is if any of you depend on what you do, you will come up short again and again and again. You know, each of us have sinned. Each of us have not loved God and have not loved our neighbour as we should. And so the reality is for those of us who are depending on what we do, what should I do to inherit eternal life? You've already blown it. You know, people spend their lives and their religions trying to achieve something, trying to make up for something, trying to earn their way back into God's favour. But we've already blown it. You see, it's not about what we do. It's about trusting in what Jesus has done. That is the only way anyone will be acceptable to God. That is the only way anyone will inherit eternal life from God. You know, I've spoken about it the last couple of weeks. I'm going to say it again. When I was 17, one of the most profound things I ever heard was from a Christian speaker who said the difference between Christianity and every other religion are the letters N and E. I'm thinking, what the heck is he talking about? And he explained, he said, religion is all about what you do. D-O. I pray five times a day. I fast for a month at a certain time of the year. I get washed in a river. I give to a charity. I go to church at Easter time. I do this, I do that, I do this, I do that. Religion is about do, but Christianity, following Jesus, is about done. D-O-N-E. See, Christianity is not about trying harder. Christianity is not about working harder. Christianity is not about keeping a set of rules to be accepted by God. Christianity is all about Jesus and trusting in what he has done, in trusting in what he has done. You see, Jesus comes along as the perfect one. Jesus comes along as God, come to us in flesh, come to us in human form, come to us as a man. And Jesus always lived the perfect life. He loved his father, God, in every way possible. He loved his neighbour as himself. And you know what? Our problem of sin, our problem of failure, is actually met with the solution that Jesus brings Jesus is kind of like the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the one that does something incredible to help his enemies. Jesus is the one that doesn't just cross the road to help out. Jesus is the one that descends from heaven. Jesus is the one that crosses the universe. Jesus is the one that comes into human form. Jesus is the one who takes clothes off his back. Jesus is the one that binds up our wounds. Jesus is the one that actually dies for his enemy. While that person is lying in the gutter, as Jesus helps them up, they are hating him. They are spitting on him. They are rejecting him. Yet that is when Jesus demonstrates his love for you. You know, my favourite verse in the Bible comes from Romans chapter 5. And it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, the verses surrounding that verse talk about how we are God's enemies. We are those who have rejected God because of our sin and are therefore not just indifferent to him, but are opposed to him, are on the opposite team from him. Yet it's at that point, 
when we're throwing rocks at the creator of the universe, when we're throwing stones at Jesus as he comes down, it's at that point that Jesus shows us his love for us by even then being willing to die for his enemy. You see, Jesus is the one as he dies on that cross. He dies a death that we deserve. He dies a death in our place. You know what, for, the, for these religious people that Jesus is speaking to, they know the law. For these religious people that Jesus is speaking to, they, they've read it before. They know about all the stuff that went on in the Old Testament. They know about the religious sacrifices. They know about everything that God required of his people. They even knew about what God had provided as a way out of sin, even in the Old Testament. You know, in the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, there's this thing called the sacrificial system. It's the way in which God enables his people to be forgiven of their sin. And so what used to happen year after year, year after year, year after year, animal was slaughtered, animal after animal after animal. And there was kind of this symbol of what was happening as that blemish that free from blemish animal was killed. The priest's hand would be put upon the head of that animal. And as it was killed, it was as if, our, as, as if the guilt of sinners was being transferred to that animal. It was as if as that animal was taking away sin, it was taking sin upon itself. You know, it happened year after year after year after year after year until Jesus came. As Jesus comes, he is one sacrifice once for all. And there's a very real sense in which we've actually got our hand upon his head and our guilt, our shame, our failure to love God, our failure to love our neighbour, our failure to love our enemy, our failure to live the way that God wants us to live is poured out on Jesus' head. He takes it all. He takes it all upon himself at the cross. You know, three days later, he rises again to show that he's dealt with sin once and for all. That is what Christians are celebrating this weekend at Easter. That is what Christians celebrate every week as they gather together. That death of Jesus on the cross. That death of Jesus on the cross that takes away sin. You see, if you're sitting there right now thinking God will accept you because of the things that you are trying to do, he won't. God will only accept those who cling to Jesus, who he is, what he has done. You see, the only way anyone can stand before God is by coming to Jesus, trusting in Jesus. And so I started with the question, how are you going to respond to Jesus? Now, maybe you've heard this a thousand times and you've responded appropriately a thousand times, keep responding appropriately. Or maybe you've heard this a thousand times and you've never responded appropriately. You just try to be a good person. You just try to do good things. You just try to be religious. Or maybe you're hearing this for the first time and you're amazed. I want to invite you to respond rightly to Jesus. Don't trust in yourself and what you can do, but trust in Jesus and what he has done. Trust in Jesus and his death on the cross. Jesus is the one that crosses the street, bends down in a very costly, messy type of way, takes upon himself what we deserve for our sin. I'm going to pray a prayer. If you're here last week, it's the same prayer I prayed last week. And I guess there's a few people I want to pray this prayer. I want you to pray this prayer if you're a Christian. 
and you want to keep trusting Jesus. I reckon this is a cool prayer to pray all the time. It's basically a prayer saying, sorry for my sin. Thank you for Jesus. Please help me to now live for him. Maybe, I'll, maybe the second type of people I want to pray this prayer, those who are actually kind of playing the religious game, but you actually know you need to turn to Jesus properly and stop trusting in yourself and start trusting in him, pray this prayer. The third group of people are those who may be hearing this for the first or second or first handful of times and actually want to go, I want to follow Jesus. I want to put my trust in him and what he has done. And so I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer. If you're not ready to pray this prayer, no one's going to force your arm to do that. Please do keep asking your friends, uh, talking to your friends, keep coming to public meetings to find out more about Jesus. But here's the prayer I'm going to pray. I'm going to quickly read it, then I'll pray it. It says, Dear God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for ignoring you. Thanks for sending Jesus to die for me so I may be forgiven. Thanks that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and cleanse me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. You've got the three things that are going on. I want you to pray it. It's a way of, it's a way of turning away from religion. It's a way of turning away from performance. It's a way of turning away from trusting in yourself and turning to God to trust in him and his son, the Lord Jesus, who died and was raised again. Here's how I'll pray it. I'll uh, pray a little bit, leave a gap, and just echo it in your head and echo it in your heart uh, and trust that God hears the prayer of the one who genuinely prays it. Let me pray. Dear God, I am sorry for my sin. I am sorry for ignoring you. Thanks for sending Jesus to die for me so I may be forgiven. Thanks that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. Um, Let me just say, if you've prayed that prayer for the thousandth time and meant it, sweet. But if you've actually prayed that prayer for the first time and meant it, trust that God has heard your prayer and trust that there's actually even a party in heaven right now going on over even just one person who prays that prayer and decides to put their trust in Jesus and start following him. Uh, I'm going to hand back over to Richard.